<clears throat> one of the most awkward funerals I've ever been a part of happened a few years ago here in this church. There was a woman who went through Hope Works just for a couple of days. She dropped out, and a couple of years later, she ended up losing her life. Uh, she was a drug addict she, uh, and hardcore drugs. She was in an abusive relationship, and her boyfriend fiance ended up beating her and left her with wounds. And a few weeks later, she ended up dying, both from some of the infections, but also the drugs she was on. And I, to this day, I don't know what ended up happening to the fiance, if he was ever tried and found guilty. But this family came to us because someone in this church had been her faith encourager at Hope Works for just a few days. So they came to us. They weren't connected to her church at all. So they asked if we could be a host for their funeral and if I would do her funeral. And then the day before, the mother made a CD and she had three songs she wanted played at this funeral. The first one was Mercy Me, uh, I Can Only Imagine, which has been played at a lot of funerals. The second one was a song from Guns N' Roses. And I don't remember what that song was. I remember the third song, though, because the third song was a song by Eminem and Rihanna called Love the Way You Lie, which is a song about domestic abuse. So if you're a minister in this moment, what do you do if somebody wants three songs played in a funeral where two of them would not be songs that would be played in a church or a funeral or a wedding or anything like that? So we wrestled and we're like, do we play it or not? And we're like, well, maybe. I mean, everyone who was there, 100% of the people who were there were not currently church people. So maybe God can use Guns N' Roses and Eminem and Rihanna to help set the stage for them to be drawn to God through Mercy Me and I Can Only Imagine, maybe. So we were going to let them play all three songs. And we showed up the day of the funeral and two of the three songs would not work. It's like God stepped down and was like, not those two will only have mercy me. <clears throat> and then I opened up and I shared for a few moments just about brokenness and pain. I didn't know this woman at all. So sometimes the risk that ministers take is we try to preach people into heaven. And I couldn't do that. I don't know who she is and I wasn't going to judge her. So I talked a lot about brokenness. And then I opened it up for other people in the room to share. Her fiance who did the beating was not there. The first person who stood up was on the front row, and he said, I was also her fiancé. Not used to be. I am her fiancé, too. And then he shared a story about her. And then the next person who stood up was also her fiancé. And then someone else stood up saying they've been married for 10 years, but they used to date her, and she's still the love of their life. I felt like I was in a Jerry Springer show for just a moment, all right? <laughs> And just sadness and brokenness. And I remember that day a few times thinking as I thought, like sat there over her ashes, thinking about this woman's life, a woman I never knew. And I don't know if I ever verbalized this, but there are times when I look on a situation like this and I, I can go to a bad place and I could just think, this is what she had coming to her. You get caught up in a life of drugs and you get in relationships where you cannot say no and there's abuse that happens. Like, this is what can happen. Maybe this is what she had coming to her. And it's times like that where God's like, how about you take a step back, bro, and take a look, take a bigger look. And God begins asking me questions. Questions like, who created this woman? Questions like, do you think I brought her into this world with the intent for her to love the needle and to love abuse? Which I think the answer is no. And then a lot of times God takes me back to Philippians 2. And God does this quite often where he takes me back to what Paul wrote one time. Do nothing out of self-ambition or vacancy. Rather, in humility, you value others better than yourself. 
And there are times I read it, I'm like, yeah, God, but you know I'm better than so-and-so, right? And God's like, no. Like, you take a step of humility where you value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with another have the same mindset that is in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I want to take you back to the very beginning of Scripture, things I've taught before, reminders I need every single day, and I'm not exaggerating. Every day I need these reminders. I live from a better place. When it comes to people and brokenness and abuse, I live from a better place when I'm reminded of these things that come in the very beginning of Scripture. In Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was, and I don't know what your version has right here, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, this phrase there, formless and empty, or whatever your version has, in the Hebrew, it's the phrase tohu wobahu. Write it down. Go say it a few times a day. It sounds really fun. But Hebrew scholars, like the, the lances of the world, have a lot of different ways to think about this word. Some it's formless, or void, or chaos, or barren, or inhabited. And I don't know what your version has, but I think as you look at the words that are on there, you get the sense that what God did in the very beginning is there was something that was nothing, and God's going to create something out of it. There was something that was either chaos or it was formless. It didn't have form to it, and God's going to do something. And this has become for me what I think is one of the best news that the world needs, some good news that the world needs, that what God did in Genesis 1 and 2 is what God still does today. That in your life and in the world where there is something that is formless or broken or that has been abused or battered, that God knows, and we know this from the very beginning, God knows how to take that and create something beautiful out of it, right? This is, this is the good news of how the entire Bible goes. Now, the thing with creation is this. Almost every religion in, in back thousands of years, everybody has a creation story. Every religion has a story about how the gods created the world. And the way most of those go, and I'm totally simplifying this big time, almost every other story but ours, the gods got bored when they created the world. Their gods got tired of it. Their gods took on the mindset of God should be focused on bigger things than creating all these little things that work around the world. So then they asked humans to do it because they were so bored. But not our creation story. Our creation story is a God who didn't get bored with creation. In fact, when God is creating, God thinks what is created is very good. And then it comes to the time when God creates human beings. And this is what I need every day. Genesis 1, 26, 27. That God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. In the image of God, the imagio day, that God, there was something about God that he placed on human beings. Something about human beings that reflects the nature of God. Now, to be an image means it's like a statue. It is something that you can see that is pointing to something that cannot be seen. John Mark Connor, in one of his books, when he's talking about creation, says that in this, God is showing the world what God is like. So I live at my best when whoever is in front of me, I see them as someone who is created by God, created in the image of God. Now, Genesis 3 happens where sin enters into the world and sin breaks 
human's relationship with God and sin breaks human's relationship with other humans and human's relationship with creation and creation's relationship with creation. Sin wrecks havoc on the entire world. But here's Genesis 5.1.2 says this. So after the fall, post-fall, what you have is this reminder of saying almost the same thing in chapter 1. That when God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. It's like God's given this, them this reminder he created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them mankind when they created. So here's the good news. The reminder I need today, that you need today, and the reminder that we give to the world is this, that sin breaks us, yet God is still the one who formed us. That sin did not get the first word in your life. God got the first word in your life. And sin doesn't get the last word in your life. God gets the last word in your life. And you are not defined by the biggest mistake in your life or by what someone else has done to you. A sin they committed upon you in your life. God gets to define life. And this is how the church comes together to remind each other of this, of this truth. Now, uh, a few things I just want to remind you of. A few slides I've already shown in the last few weeks and just want to lay the foundation with these again. And here's a slide I showed you a few weeks ago in our first series back in January, but it's this, that God values people. It's hard to value people. Yet if God values people, maybe we should work hard at valuing people too. I tweeted this and got a big response of people. This is a major challenge for a lot of people because you know it's true. It's hard to value a lot of people. And valuing people does not mean that you're just accepting everything that comes with that person. Valuing someone means that we see whoever it is in front of us as someone who's been created by God, who wants to be redeemed and saved by God, worthy of the love of God, worthy of the blood of Jesus. We're in a series right now called Taboo. It's a four-week series. And so today I'm going to talk about sexual abuse and the Me Too movement and Church Too movement. Next week I'm going to talk about mental health, mental illness, and suicide. In a few weeks I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about immigration. And my purpose in these sermons is not that I feel the calling of God telling me to tell you exactly how to think about all of these issues. It's to be used as a person of God to help equip the church with a biblical foundation to engage the world. So last week I showed you a slide at the very end of my sermon, and it was this, that we are at our best when we are clinging and pressing into God while paying just enough attention to the world to know how to navigate kingdom life, and that we are at our worst when we are clinging and pressing in the cultural and political ideologies while paying just enough attention to God to make us feel righteous. What this means is this. You can't spend five hours on Fox News and two hours in the morning doing your precious moments Bible study and think you are living out what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. All right, what this means is you can't spend five or six hours on NPR, yet spend time every morning where you pray the first thing you get up and you pray over a meal before you eat and think you're living out what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. But we also, I think the people of God, God wants us to be aware of what is going on in the world because how are we going to speak and take light into the world if we can't even hang in conversations with what is going on in the world? John Maxwell places three, these three questions in front of people, and I showed you this last week. Three questions people ask before they follow, and I think this is so relevant for the topic we are discussing today. The three questions people ask before they follow is this. Do they like me? Can they help me? And can I trust them? And I hope that as a church we're living into life in a kind of way where people respond to these with yeses. 
I also talked to you last week as a preacher, a lot of times the questions I wrestle with is like, what does the church need? How is God calling me to help equip the church and, and fill the church with knowledge and passion of what it means to be God's people? But sometimes I think the question God is asking is, what does the world need from the church? It's not just what does the church need for each other. It's what does the world need from us? What kind of people does the world need us to be? And last week I placed in front of you at the very end of this sermon that this series is hopefully a call to healing for many of you. A call to repentance, a call to focus on the main things, and a call to loving and valuing people. Because as this next slide will show, I think a lot of us have a statement like this, that we value people as long as, and you just fill in the blank. We value people as long as they look like me, or smell like me, or vote like me, or oriented like me. We value people as long as this. Because if we talk about what it means to value people, we've also got to acknowledge that in, we live in a world where we know probably more how to devalue people than we know how to value people. And this has happened since Genesis 3. And even today, like you're aware, I mean, there's well over 27 million people living as slaves in the world today. There's racism and there are wars and classism and so many things going on and where, where we devalue people. Pornography devalues people. We live in a state... <laughs> This, this blew my mind a couple of years ago, that in Tennessee, or, or I'm sorry, in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama, there are three states with some of the highest percentages of Christians in the, in the world, in the nation, if not the world. Yet those are also the three states that have the highest ticket sales for all the Fifty Shades movies, which is devaluing people. If we devalue people, we've got to talk about what it means to value people. So I remember uh, back in high school, something I would do every October with my buddies. We would travel and we would go to haunted houses. I grew up in Dallas, so we had like a 30-mile radius where we would go to haunted houses in Deep Ellum or haunted houses in Terrell. And we had these haunted houses we would go to. And we, just a group of friends would go. And I, a couple of times I had my girlfriend there with all the other friends. And, and some of these haunted houses we would go into, you would go into a room and then there would be like three or four doors and you would have to choose what door you wanted to open to try to get out. And there's a good chance you were going to open a door and, and you open that door and there's going to be someone with a chainsaw or something else. So my dad raised me to be polite, especially when it came to women, that women always go first. All right. So, uh, so <laughs> any girlfriend I was dating was like, baby, you go first. All right. You open the door. I'm going to follow you. Uh, and we would get in the car and she would be like, was that high-pitched shrill you? Which I would always blame on Brian or K-Dog or one of my other friends. But here's the thing. So many times in the church, it's like we are so afraid to open a door because we don't know what's going to be on the other side. And if we open a door and there's something that's messy, something that's scary, something that strikes fear, then we shut the door because we don't want to dive into the mess. Yet God's not a safe God. There's a lot about God that is safe, but there are times where God's inviting the church to jump into a mess. So we're, we're jumping in today. So let me take you on just a brief journey of the last two and a half years. And I guess I want to start in 2006, where Tarana Burke is the one who, who first launched the Me Too movement. And Tarana Burke is a woman of color, and she launched this movement in 2006, and it didn't gain a lot of traction in 2006, but she launched this movement as a woman of color, uh, and, and she's also a sexual abuse survivor, and she launched this movement to be a safe place, especially for women of color to share their stories of abuse, because the women of color, black, black women, are often the least 
the, the women who report abuse the least. So she, tried, she was trying to raise awareness for them. And the movement kind of went away for a while. If you remember in October of 2017, Ashley Judd came forward with accusations against Harvey Weinstein of sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And a couple of weeks later, there's an actress, Alyssa Milano, who had this tweet. I believe it was October 15th in 2007. And the tweet was, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. And she went to sleep that night. And the next morning, like over a million people had already replied with retweeting it this with, with me too. It didn't take long. In a very short amount of time, this grew to 19 million people who had responded. And this is when we began to hear stories of uh, U.S. gymnasts who came forward against the doctor at Michigan State. And this is when many women were sharing stories. And, and I know that sexual abuse is not just with women. I know men have dealt with this. I know the LGBTQ community deals with this. But for the most part, sexual abuse has been men against women. And, and this, in many ways, became a, a movement of women sharing stories of Me Too. And then you had these high-profile people, people we've seen in movies and shows and on TV, people like Matt Lauer, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, uh, the comedian Louis C.K., and now R. Kelly, and we have these singers and people that, you know, and I think the way God works a lot is trying to raise attention and raise awareness of who the oppressor is to bring down the oppressors. And not only that, but you also had people who were sharing their stories, and, and well-known people, people who've been public, some of them for years, people who've set, shared stories in their past of sexual abuse, like Oprah Winfrey, Ashley Judd, the actor Terry Crews, and even Christian people that you've read their stuff for years, you've watched their sermons, Beth Moore, Christine Kane, and most likely, most recently, someone who was sexually abused we didn't know about because the first time he talked about it was a few weeks ago at a conference, Max Licato. And you hear these stories, but, but here is what, here's what broke my heart. And maybe my heart should have been broken just by seeing that there are 19 million people and millions of women who are talking about this. But what really broke my heart is when I started scrolling through my phone and I started seeing women that I know. And women in this church, one, two, three, four, double digits of women I take communion with every week, women Casey and I have known, and maybe some of these are stories we've been aware of for a while, but some of them, it's like the first time Casey and I were looking at, at each other like, I didn't know, did you know? And these women that I know, like they're not women seeking attention, so then it was like this, this brokenness in me of the courage it took for them to type something and then to post it, knowing that there would be people who would support them and also knowing that the moment it went public, there were going to be people who would question them, people who would minimize what had been done. And how many other people maybe wrote it and wanted to hit post, but they didn't? And how many other people could have? I know the Me Too movement was started by liberal activists, but these 19 million people, it wasn't just some liberal activist show. These are people who cross theological spectrums, political spectrums, sharing their story. Brene Brown, back in 2012, was speaking at a TED Talk, and she was not even referencing anything about sexual abuse, but she made this quote that I think is so powerful. And she said this, the two most powerful words when we're in a struggle are me too. 
Because I know for some of you, even on the bulletin today, you saw the hashtag me too. And for you, it is a trigger word. But for people who have experienced abuse, this is a phrase that was a place of healing and a place of connection for them. A few months after that, there was another movement that started. It was two women in their mid to upper 20s. One of them had experienced abuse a decade earlier in her life and tried to tell the people closest to her, but they did not believe her and they minimized her story. Ten years went by, and then her and her friend were sitting there that night, and they put out a tweet, and the tweet was this. And it was a quote of Luke chapter 8, verse 17. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. Luke eight seventeen hashtag church too. Because their abuse happened with people of faith. And the next day they woke up and this tweet had gone viral. And then people started sharing their church two stories. Which makes us, like, raises awareness for us to know these aren't just stories that happen with people who are like out there. But one of the things the enemy loves to do is to take people of faith to cause deep harm to other people of faith with the hope that the enemy can damage people's faith. And then there was another movement that began. And this one was probably the most educational for me. Because it wasn't a hashtag me too or hashtag church too. Though those made me lean in to really hear what was going on. The next one was this, why I didn't report. And this is the one that was most educational for me and helpful for me. Uh, Because this was a response to people in a lot of different levels throughout our culture who some of them were questioning out of sincerity and some of them were questioning in an accusatory way of how could those experience abuse and then wait 20 or 30 years to share their story? How can they not tell anyone? So then this hashtag started for people who have experienced abuse to share why they didn't report what, they ha- what happened to them. And this was helpful for me because there are people who have experienced trauma and within 24 or 48 hours, they have reported it and they have shared. And there are people, are people who have experienced trauma and years go by and they tell no one. My dad did not experience sexual abuse in his childhood, but he was raised by an alcoholic father, and there was a lot of trauma in his home. There was uh, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and occasionally forms of physical abuse. And my dad suppressed it because he was the one who held the entire family together. He suppressed it until my dad was in his mid-40s. When my mom finally convinced him to go to counseling to talk about some of the trauma that had happened earlier in his childhood, 25 to 30 years had gone by where my dad didn't talk about this with anyone. And then it just opened up this trauma because this is what trauma does. People respond to trauma differently. One person said this, when it comes to sexual abuse, it's really the only crime where people doubt the victim immediately where they try to minimize it, that really didn't happen the way you thought it happened. And the way trauma works are three responses. With trauma, there's often fight, or there's flight, or there is freeze. Something happens, and you're ready to fight and go after it, or you're running from it, trying to suppress it, or you're free. You just don't know, you don't know what to do. And, and I'm sure most of you know this, how trauma works. I'm going to take a seat for a moment because this is the part of my sermon. I'm going to need you to lean in a little more. Some of you saw what was, I was going to talk about today and you already think you know everything you need to know on this subject or you think you know exactly how the sermon's going to go. <clears throat> the way trauma works is there are these triggers to trauma. I'm not a brain expert. I'm not a trauma expert. 
But the way trauma works is that there is a part of your brain that stores trauma, and it can go dormant for years. And all it takes sometimes is somebody to grab you in a certain way, or maybe there's a smell, or something that awakens that trauma, and you're right back in the trauma. Maybe you've known people before who've been physically abused or abused in some kind of way and somebody just grabs their shoulder from behind or they they grab their neck or they grab their arm and there's a word that is spoken and there's a trigger that goes off. So here's here's what I need you to do and I need you to lean in just for a moment and I want you to put yourself in my place. Put yourself in the place of a minister, a therapist. Put yourself in the place of a counselor. Put yourself in the place, and maybe you are this place, where you are a safe place that when trauma is awakened in people, they feel like you are someone they can come to and share what has happened. Because everybody needs someone when trauma is awakened that they can go to knowing that whoever they share it with, they're not going to get defensive they're not going to try to immediately reframe the narrative to make you think it didn't happen the way you, th- you, you think it happened, but they are there to listen and to receive you just as you are. Everyone needs this kind of person. There are three events that have happened in the last two and a half years where there have been multiple women, I'm not just talking about one, multiple women who have reached out to me because their trauma has been, had been reawakened. And I want to share these three with you hoping that you, you know that I don't have some political fight in this hunt. When trauma's reawakened, how do we receive people? That's what I'm laying in front of you. The first one, it was the 48 hours after the election night in 2016. I had double-digit women reach out to me. Because around that time, President Trump had close to 20 women who had ac- accusations against him, and he's been on the record, and we can't sweep this under the rug. He's been on the record writing things in books, and saying things that haven't always valued women. Some of the women who reached out to me, they lean right conservative uh, uh, when it comes to politics. But there was something about what had happened and something about how things were just swept under the rug. Like, we're, not only, we're just not going to talk about that. That awakened in them. It was a trigger that awakened trauma. So if you're in my position, how do you respond to that? And I didn't feel like the response would be, well, 1 Timothy 2 says you pray for your leaders. Or to try to reframe the narrative. And for these people, they, they were reaching out to me. And they're not whining because their side lost. It was the trauma. When trauma is reawakened, there needs to be churches who engage in a process of healing. Understanding that healing is something that for some people will last a lifetime. The second event was last January at the High Point Church here in Memphis. The second event that allowed women, caused them to reach out to me was when there was an associate pastor at High Point who 20 years ago had been on staff at a church in Houston, Texas. And as a young man in his 20s working as a youth pastor, he became engaged with a woman who was 17, uh, uh, not engaged like marriage. They began, he abuses power. And this awakened in people, trauma. Because for some people, it was someone who they trusted within a church who caused this deep pain in their lives. And I think we're aware that wherever there is someone in a place of power who lose their moral compass, abusive things can happen. The third event recently that caused multiple women to reach out to me for prayer because trauma had been reawakened was the Judge Kavanaugh hearing. And here's, how, here's, here's what's happened in our society is that we're like walking on eggshells. We live in an ultra-hypersensitive culture right now. There are some people 
who identify with the Me Too movement, that the moment an accusation is made, whoever the accusation is made against, without even hearing their story or their side, they are a monster. Of course, they did it. And there's no, like, trust in the judicial system or, or anything else. So this whole idea in our culture that was around for so long about innocent until proven guilty, that's, like, gone in every area of our society right now. What also happened around that with Judge Kavanaugh hearing was this. is that there are some Christians who politically are conservative, who desired so much to have conservative Supreme Court justices that when it came to this hearing, it just didn't matter. It happened decades ago. We need to be people of mercy and forgiveness. And what awakened trauma, and this is where the church has to be so careful. What awakened trauma was the way some people went to social media to talk about the Judge Kavanaugh hearing. And when there were phrases used like, the Me Too movement is a movement of propaganda, or the Me Too movement is a liberal agenda, or the Me Too movement is disrupting our society, or I hate the Me Too movement. When these statements are made, what people need to know is there are people who follow you on social media who have abuse in their past, and when they see those statements, what they think is, that is why I wait 20 years before my story goes public because I do not feel like there's a place that will receive my story for what it is. So, <clears throat> so here's, here's a move I need to make just for a moment. Because I know so many of these topics are so sensitive and complex and their nuances and messy, yet there are some things about this topic today that need to be so clear to us. And I want to speak specifically just to a few groups. And, and beginning with, I want to speak to those in this room who have experienced abuse in your life. Because part of me needs to repent because there are a couple things I want to say to you that no minister or elder or church leader has ever said to you before. And it's the first time I've said a couple of these things, but here's what I think some of you who have experienced abuse need to hear from a church leader on a stage in front of other people is this. It was not your fault. It was not your fault. It doesn't matter what you were wearing. It's not your fault. It doesn't matter if it was somewhat of a flirtatious moment. It is not your fault. And I'm sorry if there have been times in your life when there have been relatives, friends, or church leaders who have minimized your story or tried to reframe it to make you think like it doesn't matter, and I need you to hear me say this, that for Casey and me, what has happened to you, it wasn't just a big deal, it will always be a big deal. And we're a church who needs to realize that healing for some of you takes a lifetime, and you need to know that there's a church who says, you don't have to do this alone. <clears throat> I need to say this to the men in the church, because here's the thing, man. We think of the Me Too movement, and a lot of people think this is a women's movement, and this is about women coming together, but here, I mean, here's the truth, and I believe this to the core. One of the greatest misconceptions and lies is that this, is a, this, this issue is a women's issue. That until there are more men who stand up and say enough is enough, 
until there are more men, specifically Christian men, who will stand up and, and condemn and rebuke, not just be silent about it, but condemn and rebuke inappropriate behavior, inappropriate jokes, until there are enough men, Christian men, who will stand up and say, this whole thing about boys being boys may work jumping off cliffs and playing around daring, do, doing daring things in backyards, but it does not work when it comes to how we value people and how we treat women. Until enough men stand up and say enough is enough with locker room talk because whatever comes out of a mouth in locker rooms is a reflection of something that's either already grown in the heart or is growing in the heart of the person standing in the locker room. So until enough men, Christian men, stand up and invest in the younger men, trying to teach them and model for them, and they get to hear you articulate what it means to value people, especially value women, this cycle of abuse will continue to, to just cycle and repeat itself over and over again. And for the, as I speak to the men in the room, I want to hear the women, I need the women to know, raise your moral bar. Because you need a man who will not only stand with you, but that you know he is a man who will stand up for you and for other women, even when it's hard. <clears throat> I need to speak a word. This is the hardest word for me to think about how to speak. But for those in this room who have been the abusers, if there are 19 million women who went public on me too, there's also a lot of people doing the abusing. And for those in the room, some of you, may have acted upon something that was acted on you earlier in life. Some of you have maybe experienced deep uh, remorse and guilt for what, is, for what you've done. Some of you may be thinking that what you did really wasn't that big of a deal, but every single day there are things that happen in the world where one person thinks what they did was not a big deal, but the person it was done to ruins them or destroys them for months or years. Boys being boys isn't good enough in the church anymore. If you're baptized... Stop saying it. If, you've, if you have done the abuse, we serve a big God who offers forgiveness and grace and mercy to all people. And for you, the best advice I could give is there needs to be repentance and surrendering and sincerely asking God to show you what a path forward needs to look like. And for the church, what I want the entire church to hear is when people come to you, especially when trauma has been reawakened, listen before you go into a mode to fix people. Hear their story. The second thing is this. Be careful of the harm that can so easily be caused on social media, sometimes without you knowing it. It drives me nuts, and I know it does you too. When you see people posting six days a week, Monday through Saturday, where they are bashing everything going on in the world and calling names, but then Saturday night they send out this message saying, hey, tomorrow I'm going to be at such and such church, and everybody is welcome. And I'm like, don't go to that place. It doesn't sound like a welcoming church. Be careful how we speak about things on social media. Resist the urge to minimize someone else's pain. And do not let your news source dictate the narratives that are shaping our world or that have shaped lives. My heart, <clears throat> this has been, I've written over a thousand sermons in my life. This is the hardest one I've had to work through. And one thing that <clears throat> I know is so real is that a lot of times we project upon God how poor behavior has happened like to us in our lives or we project upon God Things that, you know, ways there have been poor behavior by men and where that has happened. We've got to pray today for God to peel open hearts to see God for who God is. I want to ask for the elders and minister, or 
prayer leaders, if you will, just go around the room to receive people for prayer. And I don't know what's going to happen in this moment. And some of you have experienced trauma and you haven't felt like church has been a safe place for you. And this may, may not be the time for you to go to someone in need of prayer. But I want you to know that for Casey and me, and I think I can speak for the leaders of this church, we are here to receive you just as you are, to hear you for all you have. Uh, let me, I just want to, I need to quit talking. I need, to, I need to talk to God, so let's pray. I just pray today, God, I wanted nothing more to stand up here and honor you and to be a voice for you. There's just some things I need to rebuke, God, real quick uh, in your presences. I know how shame works, and I know people who have experienced abuse in their lives. Shame creeps in, and shame plants these lies of depression, or you're not good enough, or because of what's happened to you, no one's going to want to marry you, or no one's going to love you. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus today, that you rebuke any lie that shame has planted inside the hearts or the minds of people in this room and that you will open their eyes to see how they are great value in you that you have created us in your image and that whatever has been broken in our lives God you can take it and you can form it into something that is beautiful and we're asking you that God what you did back in Genesis 1 that you will do again for people here and God where healing needs to break out God let it happen where repentance needs to take place God, move people to that place. God, I just ask for you to have your way with us, and we surround this room with people who are willing to, to, to take on those who have something we can pray over them. And God, we just give all this to you in the name of Jesus. I ask again, Lord, that if I've said anything that has not honored who you are, that it will fall to the ground, be trampled, and not remembered at all. But if I've spoken anything that reflects who you are, may it sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit. In the name of Jesus, amen. If there's something that needs to come in front of this church, we have leaders up here to receive you. Let's stand. Let's sing a song.